Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 49 and we have the Tannis Morgan from BC Campus. She's an advisor, learning and teaching, digital learning strategy consultant. She has her PhD from UBC and we sit down and we talk about a bunch of things, including communities of practice, some of her research around digital ed tech, and the intersection it has with teaching and learning. So sit back, relax as usual, take some notes. We'll catch you on the other side. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you tuned in with us today. We have a return guest. Uh, This seems to be a bit of a theme right now going on in the podcast world for Praxis, but that's good. We have Tannis Morgan back. Tannis. It's sevenfold episodes since you've been with us the first time. You were with us in episode seven, way back when we first started. And uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you back with us today. So thanks for saying yes. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah, I think this is the first time I've ever been a return guest on a podcast. So this oh. is really wonderful. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so what have you been up to since we last chatted? Um, well, I think since we last chatted, chatted there was a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Just a little uh, thing. I, uh, yeah, this little thing. Um, and of course, that, you know, has changed lives around the world um, mm. and workplace things. And um, probably, yeah, I mean, it's 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 had a really interesting uh, effect on our field, I think, as well, yeah. in terms of, you know, where we were needed, but also just sort of seeing observing you know ed tech open education in this context has been obviously for so many of us interesting yeah it's a good word to use interesting (laughs) (laughs) yeah good well let's let's get right into it what was it like to be a keynote panelist for oer global that that was that's pretty cool oh yeah oer global was um you know honestly being a panelist is great because you're 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 not on the hook for saying smart things by yourself for an hour (laughs) so it was really wonderful i mean having said that we did we did do a fair amount of preparation actually which i i think i just thought we could kind of cruise in there and have a conversation but actually that wasn't the case there was some preparation but of course you saw that i was um in good company with some really fantastic people so i think um, i think the conversation ended up being pretty good Oh, it was, it was rich. That's for sure. And I'll include a link in the show notes to, to that uh, recording if people have missed it and they want to go back and listen to it because it's really good. Yeah. So your, your topic was open education and ethical issues. So for those people who didn't get a chance to clue in, tune in to uh, your session, uh, recap it for us. What, what were some things that came up in your discussion? Um, well, you know, we, d- we did sort of struggle a little bit with the title um, ethics, Mm. because ethics, again, is, you know, it's one of those things that you could say, well, according to who, right. And, you know, we were, we were an all female, white female keynote panel, you know, up there in an international conference, um, you know, which was pointed out as well. And of course the, the OE global keynote selection for this year was wonderfully um, diverse and also one of the things I really liked about it was that it put other keynotes on the stage that maybe we don't normally see. So I really appreciated the thought that went into it. So it was, it was quite easy for me to um, say yes to being on that panel. Um, So in terms of the topic itself, I think we, we didn't really talk, we talked very in around ethics, I think, like, I think we, we interpret, we took a different interpretation on it that ranged from, you know, I think um, if I remember correctly, because it was very early in the morning, 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. here on Pacific time, um, Marin shared the work that they'd been doing around a, a code of ethics um, that I think emerged through the pandemic and that sort of thing. And, and Francis Bell um, talked about the Fem Tech quilt in the context for that. And um and Anne-Marie and I were really um, there to give a bit of a Canadian perspective, I think, on observations that we had that emerged as a result of um, the, the pivot, the famous pivot. So, and all of that wasn't to say we were, yeah, we didn't really directly attack the topic of ethics, but I think it was there if you were reading between the lines. 
Yeah. It, yeah. And it was, it was, um, how, refreshing is the wrong word because it was, I, I tuned in because of that ethic piece, because, you know, you're right. Like ethics from who, for who, like who's defining that. Um, but I know in, in the TVET world, the ethical issue seems to get lost in the conversation quite quickly because it, it goes to the conversation usually ends up going to how do we assess? How do we stop cheating? Um, and, and how do we make sure that everyone's doing it the way that they are supposed to be doing it, which, you know, in, in a lot of ways is not different from other uh, educational spheres, but I, I don't think we hide those things as well as others. Right. And so it, the, the discussions become quite heated and focused. And in another part of the system that I teach into the ethical issue around surveillance is not talked about at all. Like the whole Proctorio issue, the whole Turnitin, Turnitin issue. It's just, it's just almost like, well, if this is what we're expected to do with online teaching and, and quote unquote learning, then students just have to buy into this and they have to do it. If they don't have a camera, they have to go buy one. If they don't have a laptop, they have to go buy one. This is just the cost of them going to school and, and then they have to turn their camera on and all of those issues. Right. And it's, it's, uh, um, it's hard. It's hard to walk through those issues sometimes, I think. But um, what, what are you what are you finding personally coming up for you in, in your work around the ethical issue and, and open ed and, and both just education in general? Well, I think like for us, like being here in British Columbia, you know, the whole situation with Proctorio and um, Ian Linkletter is, you know, fairly top of mind. And I think, you know, especially if you've been working in ed tech in BC for a while, or even not even for very long, you, we feel it, right? Because we, we, I think we recognize um, that situation really well. And so I, I, yeah, I would say that that's probably been front and center. And certainly, um, I mean, the surveillance ed tech stuff has been bubbling for a while. Um, but certainly when it hits something like um, our institutions around exam proctoring, it's like, oh, okay. Like it's, it's, it's really visible as opposed to some of the other spaces um, where maybe it's not so visible, but, um, or maybe we don't really realize that it's, it's sort of baked into some of the other things that we do and use as well. So what I, what I appreciate is that it's really, I think it's, I think it's really going to force different conversations. And certainly when I think about leadership in higher education, which is um, where my head's been for quite a few years now around open education and ed tech and digital, um, there's a real need for administrators, senior leaders to really understand the digital issues. Because I mean, let's face it, digital is no longer, it's no longer the portfolio of the um, CIO or the teaching and learning sector director, whoever is leading the ed tech initiative or whatever that is. Like, it's no longer just this little sort of, oh, they take care of that for us. I mean, essentially what we're talking about is the digital is like the foundation of your house or, um, as I like to, like, but analogy I like to make is that, you know, you should know your digital environment as a president or a VP, as well as, you know, the buildings that form the part of your campus that, you know, or the campuses, you know, it's, it is in a way it's its own kind of campus and it requires more than just a passing, you know, understanding that we use Blackboard as an LMS. Um, and so I think that, I feel like that is maybe where we're going. I think that um, both the pivot and some of the things we're seeing around Proctorio. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, well, of course. We'll it's, we know it's a public <laughs> loss. We know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not to say Proctorio is the only one, but you know, these business practices that are so um, pervasive in, in technology. Um, and there, and let's be clear. I mean, these, these, there's people that have been raising this issue for a long time. You know, like there's really well-known scholars like Sophia Noble, for example, who, you know, this, this is not new, but it's great that it's finally in front of us and maybe we can have the conversation now. Yeah, you're, you're so right. And I, I know that there are a multitude of learning and teaching centers in the system that would stay 
far away from these kinds of technologies that are being piloted and implemented. And because I've heard them say, I, we hate it. We don't like it. We don't want it. But it's being forced upon the system by people who are higher up the chain in, in the administration. Um, and I wonder if that's somewhat of a survival instinct because their constituents are saying, we need this, we need this, you need to get this for us. And so to avoid getting into those hard conversations and quite frankly, the weeds of this whole thing, they just go, well, my, my team needs it. So we'll just get it and we'll work out the problems later. And, you know, that's never a good policy, but. Um, no, yeah. no. And I think like, you know, one of the things that really struck me, I, I was at a talk that Sophia Noble was giving at SFU. It was about three years ago. And she talked about the need for higher education to act more as resistance to some of this. And mm. that really resonated with me because it was sort of, it, it changes this idea that, you know, you know, it's a little bit, I, I make a, the comparison a lot to um, when we had, um, oh, I can't even remember the group, you know, in, around publishing, there was this whole copyright, at, was it Access Copyright? It was a Canadian entity that basically controlled, you know, the consumption of copyrighted things that we would need for teaching and learning, essentially. And when there was that pushback finally on that, and it actually, I think, went to Supreme Court and they actually said, no, like, you know, you've access copyright has overinterpreted, you know, fair use to a point where, you know, fair use wasn't, you know, understood anymore as it should be. It's that kind of idea that like, that's, that's what we need to do. There needs to be a pushback. There needs to be a bit of a resistance as opposed to a blatant consumption. And, um, you know, that starts with conversations at the procurement stage. So, yeah. Do you think that that will be, one of the spinoffs of Ian's situation? Oh, geez. I mean, I really, A, I hope that he, he wins this case. Yeah, me too. <laughs> really, me too. really do. Um, because, you know, yeah, he's it, at the moment, it feels like a one person resistance. Um, I can't imagine what he's going through. Yeah. Um, and good to see the, the support that he's getting through his, um, is it GoFundMe? It is a GoFundMe. Yeah, GoFundMe, and and there's a few other initiatives. There's a few other initiatives too that are that are going full bore, and yeah. 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 So I think um, I, I hope so, and I, I certainly I think it is. I what I'm seeing it just you know there was an editorial today in Globe and Mail that was um, a really really well written piece um, from the perspective of a parent whose child is uh, at UBC right now, um, subjected to um, this proctoring software and of course the parent if you look it's it's somebody who leads it you know he's he, he knows what he's talking about he leads some group at university of toronto and is well versed in this but you know it's nice to see how so many of these pieces emerging that i think was a result of ian's case so um and that's important too this visible pushback so it's all important yeah and it, it's as the days and weeks go on and, and let me just go on record by saying that you know Procterio picking on Ian Linkletter is, you know, I'm going to bleed it out later, but it's chicken shirt, chicken shirt, right? It's just like, oh yeah, you're, you're this big conglomerate and you're going after Ian Linkletter, right? Like, <laughs> give me a break, man. Like, it's just so, it's just so big corporation, you know, chicken shirt just drives me crazy. And, you know, I support Ian and, and, I, I, I'd get behind him and push it physically if I could. And, uh, you know, this whole thing is just a, ah, just drives me crazy. But I, I, I hope that one of, I hope that one of the big spinoffs of, of this is that there's enough, there's enough uprising and enough uplift from the system that administration and other corporations look at this and go, okay, this is significant. And we need to take note of this kind of like, and I may be wrong in the context a little bit, so forgive me, but it kind of like what Zoom did, right? Remember when Zoom came out and everyone was, mm -hmm. everybody and their dog was jumping on it and we were still worried about, you know, privacy and, and data capture. And then something happened. Sure enough, boom, something happened and they turned around and they addressed it. Now, whether it was enough or, or, you know, whatever, but they did it, right? They responded. And I hope that there's a positive response from the system to this 
thing that Ian's going through. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful. Um, yeah. And I, and I, and I was going to say too, that, you know, it says something about where this time we're in around educational technology, where a company whose entire market really depends on the higher ed market is suing an employee at a higher ed institution. Like there's an incredible amount of like arrogance to even think that that's a good idea um, or an incredible sense of like power. So I think that's really revealing too, that it's like, oh, we're in this situation where um, that's actually happening. I, I, I don't know. I, so hopefully, I mean, if anything, that's I think a really good indicator of where pushback has to happen from higher education because we're at that point where they don't even care <laughs> who's, yeah. who's the bigger elephant apparently um apparently they're the bigger elephant so yeah. you know there away we go yeah but there's strength in numbers too right and you know an elephant's big yeah but you know you get enough you get enough people they can take down that elephant pretty quick and uh so it, i yeah go in go and we support you and um yeah Oh, brother, gets me all excited. Go in. Go in for sure. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And and we love you too, Ian. And you know, nobody can really know what you're going through, but um from the from the far removed distance that I am, I get I my social justice meter pins, right? And it's just like I can't believe this. That's Don that's Don Quixote this thing and burn it to the ground. Anyway, I'll I'll move on from my little soapbox. <laughs> Um, so Does not feel better. <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your research with regards to the intersection of distance ed, ed tech, and open ed. How is that going? Yeah, well, so the the I guess the most top of mind research probably has more to do with um, open education than it does ed tech. Um, so, but of course, open education is is also. I mean, it's hard to do open education without understanding ed tech, I think. So, um, but we, um, we being Elizabeth Childs, um, Erwin DeVries, Michelle Harrison, Christina Hendricks, and Rajiv Janjani was also part of this research, have just wrapped up actually a project where we created a tool for institutions to do a self-assessment of their open education initiative as a way to kind of identify um, where their gaps or where they might redirect resources. And this was built on um, evidence, you know, a fair body of evidence from blended learning initiatives and from institutional transformation initiatives um, that basically said, if you want to have a successful blended learning initiative or institutional transformation initiative, you need these things. These are the kind of activities you need to engage in. And there's 20, there were 21 components between those two different fields, but related that overlapped. And so we merged that into one tool and um, also added a couple questions that we felt from our own experience were gaps and um, ran that through five post-secondary institutions here in BC. And that was actually a workshop we were also did at OE Global, where we took it out to the outside of the BC community to more global audience and said, you know, does this resonate with you and your context? You know, and, you know, where do you see the gaps in this tool? Would this be useful or is this have no relevance? So that was really helpful, really validating. Um, and um, yeah, that's where we're at. And it's hopefully you'll be seeing a interactive version of this tool fairly quickly. Um, Royal Roads has a research assistant who's building it right now, and it's hopefully will be helpful for institutions to That's good. You know, have, That's good. A, have more successful OEP initiatives. <laughs> That's awesome. That'd be great. So the response was good at OE Global? Yes, it was because what we, we had people in breakout groups to actually go through the tool and point out, you know, areas of or comment on it essentially and you know have a discussion about it and that from that we you know identified you know a few th areas that actually lined up with our own understanding where the gaps were in the tool but um certainly helped you know validate our assumption about it which is you know this could be useful outside of bc which is always nice right it's always good when your validations or your, your assumptions are validated right <laughs> But I mean, the nice thing too, of course, with this is, you know, being in an open space, I think what's really incredible is that you can create these things that aren't overly precious because 
because the whole point of a CC by license is that, you know, this is what it looked like for us and this is how we implemented it, but by all means adapt this and change it for your context, as opposed to um, treating it like a precious research tool that, you know, thou shalt not change. So I think that's quite liberating, quite honestly, from a researcher perspective. It's like, okay, yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect because the whole point is iteration by others. And that's what I love about the CC BY piece of it too, right? And because for me, this may be too dramatic, but it's almost like seeing your child leave your home for the first time, right? You've done all this work. You've put all this effort into into building this thing. (laughs) Uh, This may be the wrong analogy, but it's it's what's working for (laughs) me right now. No, no, I'm following you. (laughs) And and then, you know, this, this child of mine leaves and they're out in the world and then they come back and let's say there's a couple months or six months in between me seeing them. So let's say they go off to school, they come back. There's obviously some changes. So the, the core of them may be the same, um, but they've, they've changed in a certain way. And for me, that, that growth process, that iterative process is not only valuable for my, for my kids, but it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting litmus test on even what I did previous to them leaving. And so when I look at work that I do, put it on paper, put it digitally, whatever, and then send it out to the world, when it comes back, it's like, oh, so this is how it sparked ideation, conversation, implementation in other areas. And that's it. And when it comes back, it's like, oh, I never thought of that. Never thought of that. Very cool. Yeah. 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 Very cool. uh... So, So yeah, that's, um, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty much been the research piece for the last um, year or so. But of course, um, there's, there's been some really good work this year by others, I think, around these intersections as well. So, um, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a, a really great year for, uh, partly because of the pandemic, but um, just for I, what I'm seeing is much more discussions about equity and digital and distance and you know, and how open education fits into all that. So, yeah. Yeah. So who else is doing some good research around this? You said there's, there's a couple other people that are doing it. Who are they? Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I, I've been promoting (laughs) Susan Kosuku a lot because her work really resonated with me this year, which was really about, um, you know, the distance education, which is where I started um, and how there were decades of feminist research on distance education that never really saw the light of day. Like it, it didn't, you know, and, they, and pointing out significant areas of improvement for distance education, but it largely went ignored. And that really had me thinking so much about the consequences of, you know, citation, but also, you know, surfacing, you know, it, it, it it leads into that earlier discussion about, you know, who's on the keynotes at conferences. Um, just what gets, what happens when you miss these important voices? So, and I think, um, you know, that kind of, it overlaps a lot with, you know, what we've been saying about, you know, the pandemic and um, equity and diversity and, you know, just the events of this year um, that really highlighted in, in inequities and injustices um, that we are all part of. So, yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, that, that always comes top of mind when I think about, you know, light bulb moments of the year. Sure. Certainly. Sure. Yeah. Do you, this may seem like a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do, do you think that the equity piece is contextually defined almost like the ethical issue because you know people are going to have different perspectives and understandings of what equity means and do you need do you find that there's still work to be done on what equity means in education for your second question yes i think so i guess um i mean i'm a person who thinks in terms of frameworks. So I need a framework to answer that question. For me, I would say like, for me, it's the social justice framework work. That was also another piece of research. I think that still has an impact on me um, in open education and just those, those ways of looking at things. Um, so I'm talking of course of um, Cheryl Hodgkinson Williams and Henry Trotter's piece and also Sarah Lambert's. Um, but also um, there's the, Going into the area of decolonization, there's this piece of work by some UBC scholars, um, Andreotti and 
team of people that's about de what does decolonization look like in higher education um and all of them really overlap um but for me that's really how i think about that question it's like so in terms of this framework and this continuum of social justice where does it fit is it neutral is it ameliorative is it transformative is it radical is it you know so i'm, I'm understanding it more as a gradient <laughs> oh okay okay so what what is what does decolonization in higher ed look like you know that's so in the Andreotti article, I mean, I have, I have so much more work to do in this area. This is really, I'm on level one of all this, so not really an expert, but what struck me in the, the, the work that um, Andreotti did was just going through different examples um, in higher education. I, I mean, I can maybe pass you the article to link in the show notes, but um, there's, there's, she, there's some really good language that's used there, like how sometimes you have to hospice a system. Like, isn't that a great word, hospice? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very emotional and powerful, that word. It is. And you have to sit with these structures because you know how we're, it's, it's so much of it's, well, all of it's structural, but um, you have to sit with a structure and watch it die, you know? Because it's so there's there's those that kind of um, language that's used in there that really is quite memorable. Um, it's hard for me to it, it's one of these articles that I've had to go back to many times and reread. And every time I read it, something else resonates with me. It's not a it's not a quick read. It's not a simple read. It's it's sort of something you have to chew on for a while. And I all I can say is I'm still chewing on it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Because yeah. I mean, I'll be transparent. I'm not sure I understand fully what decolonization means. Um, and being a yeah. white male, right. Who's both sides of his family immigrated from like Ireland, Scotland, uh, the Ukraine, Germany. I mean, my ancestry is, is immigrant. Um, but I, I'm not even sure what colonization means entirely like i understand the textbook of it and you know the british yeah. came over and you know and, and all that history piece to it but it is it, there's got to be more to it than just that so i'm trying I'm, I'm even doing my own work and trying to understand what what that terminology means and yeah so if you pass along that article that'd be great yeah I'll, I'll link to it for sure and i'll read it <laughs> yeah yeah there's another article that distinguishes between um colonization and coloniality and cl if i remember correctly coloniality actually is the legacy of colonialism it's the things that you live with after colonialism so that might be a helpful trigger as well um and certainly like i think what what i finally understood this year i think i understood i mean I'm, it's still a learning journey is how colonization and white supremacy go together so I think, um, you know, when you get there, it, you, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah. What I like sure. to say. Yeah. So uh, maybe that's the, the moment where some of this other stuff started making more sense for me, but. Yeah. That's a good point. It's kind of like that report that we saw not too long ago, right. From an institution I won't name, but we, we, we saw a lot of tenured people, you know, white male. And two thirds of that number were female. And the question was raised and it's a really good question. Like, have we not moved on and moved up from this? And, you know, part of me goes, well, how long have they been tenured? Like how, like when, when were they tenured in, and I'm not excusing it. I'm just trying to understand it more. Were they tenured in an era that were, was not as aware as we are now? Maybe they were, maybe they didn't care as much back then as people. Care. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not trying to excuse the number. I'm just like, okay, there's, I know that there's always more to a story, but um, yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I think anytime we ask those questions means progress. So yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> now you did your, your uh, PhD dissertation on communities of practice and this Yes. No. Or was it a sort of, sort of. 
Yeah. I mean, it was a piece, there was a piece of communities of practice in there for sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But, well, the, the theoretical frameworks were that I looked into one of them was community communities of practice, which of course was, you know, so I finished my, my PhD in 2008 and, you know, by that time I'd been working in distance education for about eight years. And um, that was very much like front and center in distance education and online learning from, you know, probably from, yeah, from about 2000 until, I don't know, maybe 2010. So it was the decade of communities of practice, um, Ella Wenger. So, yeah, yeah, I think it was, it was everywhere. I mean, you couldn't really talk about online discussion forums without talking about communities of practice. That's, that's how I remember it to the point where it was almost tedious. <laughs> ah, okay. So what's a good working yeah. definition of, of communities of practice? Oh, geez. Oh man, I feel, Ooh, I'm on the, <laughs> oh, oh, I don't even know how to answer that anymore. Like how would Wenger, I mean, I would, I always think when I think communities practice, I, I think of Wenger, Etienne Wenger. So, um, or Laven Wenger. Um, oh, and honestly, the community's practice part of that isn't the part that jumps out for me as much as the legitimate peripheral participation concept of communities of practice. So, so what do you mean um, by that? So the way I remember legitimate peripheral participation is what, what, what Wenger did, and I don't know if he went far enough, but, well, I don't think he went far enough, but problematized this idea. You have communities of practice, which, you know, is a very celebratory term that we loved to use in the, those days of the internet, because it was all about, you need to create community, you need to create communities of practice. And actually, I think that's really stood the test of time. I think that it's very true. Um, but there's, the, the idea that participation in community communities of practice were sometimes problematic. Like it's not like a simple, you know, come on in and join us kind of thing. It, it, I think, um, it, you know, and, and I think Wenger was getting at that a little bit that, you know, some people would remain on the periphery, but that was a legitimate form of participation. He had, he sort of tied apprenticeships to, or even the word apprenticeship to this whole idea of how people evolve um, in communities of practice. So there was a lot of really good stuff to sort of jump on there. I think, um, where it started falling apart for me was this idea that participation was not unproblematic, you know, but that, because we were already seeing in two thousands, just how, um, it was easier for certain people to participate in certain conversations or communities of practice than it were for others. Like there's actually, you know, people were being positioned differently in these communicative spaces on the internet. And, um, and people of course are positioned by others as well. And you positioned yourselves and it's sort of, honestly, social media really blows that whole thing up as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's where it really gets visible is this whole, how positioning and identity formation, you know, gets really complicated. <laughs> It's not, it's not a clear sort of linear path. <laughs> yeah, so. for sure. Um, so what, what, what have you learned over the last couple months that's made you go, Hmm. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about low bandwidth learning, like low bandwidth oh. online learning. There was a, there was a really good keynote by Asha Kanwar from the Commonwealth learning at OE global. And it was, it was actually pretty much all about their low bandwidth online learning work that they're doing um, in various parts of the world, the mostly the developing Commonwealth countries. It's amazing that we still say that Commonwealth. Um, so, uh, or that it still is a thing. It's just, it's kind of, it seems like a, a legacy from another time, but um, yeah. And, 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 you know, through, through conversations with other people, I mean, one of the things about the COVID pivot was this whole, aha moment about, wow, like there's students in Vancouver who have a difficult time accessing the internet unless they go to a Starbucks or a coffee shop or use their institutional Wi-Fi or use the institutional computers even, you know, this, and I had an experience this summer where, you know, I traveled five hours north of Vancouver and like internet was not reliable. I overheard a conversation in a store where a teacher had to move into the larger town because she couldn't do zoom meetings from her, her home. Like it just, so she had to actually move. Whoa. 
Really? So yeah, K to, a K to 12 teacher. And oh that was like, wow. So this is happening five hours outside of Vancouver. Like yeah. it, there just wasn't enough bandwidth for her to teach her class. So five hours outside of Vancouver. I mean, it's astonishing. Like you're not even like, you know, BC is big and you haven't gone very far if you've gone five hours outside of Vancouver. So that kind of was, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot because it's, it's, it's that whole, what, what is the experience? What do we think the experience is for students and what is it actually? And of course me being in an urban area and having been in urban area for a long time, I I'm like, wow, you know, I think I'm out of touch. Um, And I think I had assumptions about connectivity in this province that were completely unrealistic. Um, So been reckoning with that quite a bit and thinking, you know, it's taken me back to, 1999 and what did what did online education look like in 1999 oh that's why we did this and I remember we used to do that because Mm -hmm. and a lot of it had to do with access and bandwidth right yeah Um, no exactly which coming back to communities of practice I mean that's why communities of practice were I think you know we we talked a lot about that because the tools weren't that amazing I mean we didn't have a lot of tools and there weren't that they weren't especially complicated right so you your tension went more it wasn't really about what tool it was more about what are you going to how can you do that tool and does that you know is that going to get us where we want to be and what are the frameworks for helping us get there and communities of practice was one of those things where if you have really good community students will be okay with being on a text-based discussion forum if they're having rich conversation yeah there's a man i my mind goes back i took some courses from uh, uh, well, I'm just thinking, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll use it as an institution not to be named, <laughs> uh, from Saskatchewan. And, uh, it was like pure distance ed. Like I worked on it. I had a computer, like, this is like late nineties, had a computer. I mean, we had dial up and, you know, stuff like that, but it was not that reliable. Anyway, my point is I did my work, printed it off, put it in an envelope, mailed it off the professor would, would mark it, mail it back. Like, so I wouldn't get papers yeah. back for, you know, two, three weeks, sometimes not even a month. And, you know, yeah. I'm just chugging away at the course and hopefully that the, the, the train, the train of communication will eventually loop back to me. And it was, and it, but it, that's what everybody was doing. Didn't know any better. Didn't know it could be better. Just accepted it and moved on now in, you know, 2020, 2019, 2020, you know, I'm like, I'm lamenting that I can't go to Starbucks and work because one, there's no tables. <laughs> right. And, you know, like you said, if I, if I, if I leave my community a couple hours in either direction, right. Will the Starbucks even have reliable Wi-Fi to begin with? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I've been thinking, of, so, I mean, T- Tanya Elias, who I don't know if you've had on your show yet, but um, she, she's just such an interesting thinker. I just, and, and writer as well. And she has this concept of pedagogy of small. And her and I share this view of, of you know, some of this old school distance education stuff um, was definitely, I mean, let's face it, like what you're describing there, technology improved that tenfold, more instant feedback, no trekking to the post office and mailing stuff like that's, that's absolutely a massive improvement but there were other cases of distance education things that we kind of like we threw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit and i've been <laughs> i've been thinking about that too like i you know for example one of the things that's never really and maybe this is just personal but it's never really resonated with me as as an ex, as a learning experience is um my husband took a he took some courses from the open learning university well, TRU now, but at the time it was right before it went to TRU. And, you know, he, used, he, he would get a box, like a geology course, and it came in a box and there were rocks in the box, you know, and you had to analyze these rocks and sort of look at them and play with them. And then you had to go out to, um, you know, Stanley Park or wherever you lived and find specimens and analyze them and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's pretty fantastic, actually. And I, I've often... I often wondered, like, what did they replace that with? Like, is it like now you have a 3D thing on your computer and you turn it around and you observe the rock? I mean, that's what I imagine is where it went. And is that better? You know, A, is that, you know, is that a better learning experience? Or, you know, in the case of a course, a fairly experiential course like that one he had, 
maybe it's better to still keep sending the box of rocks. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I wonder whether we question that enough, you know? What I was going to say was it makes total sense because my kids are homeschooled. Well, three of them are done. I got one left. Um, and we, we homeschool, uh, the brick and mortar school is, is in the interior. So it's online and they're doing like bio 11, bio 10, bio 11, and they're getting boxes of things that they got to dissect, right? Like, like stuff that we did in in high school that they're doing on my kitchen table. Now there's some interactive stuff of, okay, watch this video or watch these two videos, read these instructions. But other than that, there's, (laughs) there's a, there's an animal in a box and now you have to, you, you dissect it. And then what was really cool was uh, the teachers allowed my kids some some lateral flexibility on what they wanted to do outside of the few things that they were required to do. So they said, okay, you've got this, you've got this thing on your table now. Don't just do these three things, but think about doing these other five things, like pick two or three out of these other five things that you could do and then tell us about that, which I thought was just, you know, fantastic. So your idea of why are we not still doing rocks in a box was just, just beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it makes me sound old, but I think, and I never would have said it prior to a pivot, but just observing, you know, this, at some point, this, the screen, you know, too much of a thing maybe doesn't enhance the learning either. Like, I don't know, maybe there's a mix of both somewhere. And I think it's, again, the idea that, I mean, not to say that we absolutely should go back to those days, but we did have some interesting things that we just kind of threw away because the digital was better, you know? And I wonder whether, you know, that was actually true. Like if we could, I don't know. I like your example of your kids getting their animals to dissect in a box, but there's also a digital component that makes absolute sense. I mean, they don't need a VCR to put in a tape to watch that video, you know? I mean, there's some things that, you know, make, make sense. So, but the other example I wanted to share was that was so memorable for me is he had this course that was, um, might've been an English course. And of course the, the open university was, um, shared studios with the knowledge network. So they had, you know, obviously top notch video production, but it, the, it was so engaging. It was like watching, like, it was like watching a Netflix series, you know, being acted out on screen for an English course. And I've never forgotten it because it's like, wow, like that is a really good example of what distance education and online learning can be. And at some point, you know, you, you can't, you can't have BBC or CBC quality for everything. That was an advantage of digital. It's like, you know, you don't need to go into the video production studio. You can take your phone and, you know, do this and show your students a video that will help them learn a technique, like absolutely hundred percent. But at the same time, in terms of learner engagement, like maybe there are cases where, you know, that really engaging Netflix series for an English course. was, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's being, it was just, it was just so memorable, you know, and it came of course, in you know, a cassette that you had to put into a VCR and, you know, it was, it was all that, but yeah. All that to say that, you know, there was some really good things being done pre-digital as well that were actually really effective. Yeah. I, and I'm right with you. And I, and I'm, and there's been some chatter in the trades world about doing a trades flicks idea, right. Where you, you, you'd have a, you'd have a topic and a, and, or, and a couple seasons with, you know, some episodes in it and, uh, and, and do it that way. So yeah, it'd be an interesting trail to go down because you could do it in almost any, any kind of course or discipline, right. That'd be cool. You could, you could. In fact, I mean, when I was at the JI, there was the leadership program that was being done for BC housing. It was custom made for them. And they did a, they're actually with actors because the JI actually like to use actors for their scenario based training. Um, and so they created an office drama, which basically was to help managers learn how to deal with various office things. And it was a, like, it was like a office soap opera that extended over the course of three months. Um, you know, video based. And yeah, I mean, there's all these, uh, there's all these things. Right. And of course that was done digitally. You didn't need a cassette mailed to you, but um, yeah. Yeah. I just sometimes, you know, I I think because there's been so much zoom and (laughs) 
um, quick, quick and dirty pivots that it's, it's made me a little bit nostalgic for some of the things that are, you know, the things that you can do when you actually have time and, you know, some resources. Yeah. Especially when you want to control your own time and you don't want somebody dictating to you, okay, we got to be on a zoom meeting at one thirty tomorrow afternoon. And you're like, uh, really, do I have to be there? And I, I know, I, I yeah. want to be there, but you know, do I really, yeah, I get it. Tennis, what's been absolutely confirmed for you lately? What, what have you bumped into that's, yeah, confirmed? I mean, confirmed, it was more the surprise about the, you know, like the connectivity in this province um, that really showed that, yeah, we're not as connected as we thought. Um, confirmed, you know, honestly, on a, you know, I sort of put it on a positive note, the, the, community that we have actually here in British Columbia, the higher ed community is, is just remains outstanding. You know, we, I'm, I'm thinking about ETAG. I'm thinking about the open education community. We have so many great colleagues who are so willing to help and share. And we really saw that with pivot, you know, these, these amazing, you know, keep teaching sites that were created. There was an incredible amount of borrowing and reusing of materials. And I think one thing that really was really positive, positive in all this is that nobody had the time to create their own special flavor of something. So borrowing from other institutions became a reasonable practice. Um, not trying to run your own sort of training sessions in your own institution, but actually bringing people into ones that were being done elsewhere, you know, pointing faculty to those. So I think all of that was, I mean, that's, I hope that stays because I think that was a real positive shift. Um, more yeah more sharing and more opening and more borrowing willingness to borrow which we don't talk about that much because i think we all want to be special when we're in our institutions and you you know you you want your own twist on things but honestly when there's no resources and time to do that the, the borrowing is really important it's interesting, isn't it, that crises kind of break down all the silo walls in, 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 in a lot of ways, right? Like if you look at a town that gets flooded, like it doesn't matter which background you have, doesn't matter essentially what you, what you do for a living, like everyone's filling sandbags, right? And trying to protect what's most mm -hmm. important. And I agree, I saw a lot of that at the beginning of, of our, I call it the pancake, and that's not my idea, that, that comes from Jesse mm -hmm. Strommel, but uh, this, because, you know, a pivot would... To me, a pivot in sports language means that you know what you're doing, and there's a there's a specific focal point, and it's practiced, and you and you're you're in the you're in the moment, right? Where this thing was anything but so that. true, yeah. And so, yeah, that's a really good point, yeah. So I, I tend to call it a yeah. Pancake. Pivots in sports are like a technique, yeah. yeah absolutely, that's a, yeah, that's really great. I like that. Well, I'll give credit to Jesse Stromwell on that one. The sports one is mine, but um, he, he came up with the pancake idea. But, you know, we saw that at the beginning too, right? Where, you know, it didn't matter what you were doing, what, what background you had. If you had stuff, you just gave it. And yeah, and now I'm, I'm seeing, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a bit of a, a, a switch back to the, I call it the business model of, of education where it's like, okay, now we're getting a little more in-house and we're going to give it a little bit more flavor of our colors, our people, you know the context that we're in, which I think is needed to a degree, but mm -hmm. I, I do miss that. Okay. We're all in this together. Um, we're not going to leave anybody behind, uh, even if it takes us longer to get out. Um, so I miss that piece. Yeah. Well, I will say too, that one of the things that I've really enjoyed seeing is just how much trades is coming into the open conversation as well. And I think you have a big part in that. Um, it's been really wonderful to see because I think, you know, yes, in our minds, we park trades as separate from, I guess, non-trades, but what it's, what it would be really important for people to remember is that's experiential and applied learning, <laughs> uh, yeah. which yeah. of course, which of course cuts across trades, it, ca it crosses into other things. So I think that, you know, the more we can um, observe and, and also, help with that effort in trades. I think we, we all benefit from it. Right. So, um, that's been really great. And it's really, I think it added a real flavor to open education, you know, seeing that the trades become part of that conversation a little bit more, maybe more visible. I guess that's maybe what it is. It was probably always there, but it's much more visible. So 
Yeah. It's, it's an interesting time for trades for sure. And I'm, I know I had a discussion with my own department two years ago. So about six, seven months before the, the pancake happened and urging them, you know, we need to get online. We need to go digital with some of our stuff. Like it's, it's the wave of the future. Like we need to start doing this. And the pushback was significant from the most of the department. Others were already dabbling in it and practicing, but obviously there was no outside compelling force doing that. And then March 10th comes and boom, and we're in it. And um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of uh, faculty and departments across the province have really made a good, solid effort to, to get up from the pancake and move forward. And I think that's because they were already doing some of this work. And um, I, I often smile when I, when I hear uh, departments and um, from other institutions or even from the one that I'm, I'm associated with talk about work integrated learning or talk about living labs. And cause I'm thinking, well, you know, trades, we've been kind of doing this for a couple hundred years, hmm. but you know, to not get arrogant yeah. about it, it's like, well, you know, we've got a lot to learn about collaborative, collaborative practice, about soft skill, about, you know, thinking in, in a broader term systems thinking when it comes to people, not just mechanically, so there's, there's a lot of things that we can learn too. So I, I hope this, this situation uh, keeps the walls lower and doesn't, doesn't, in, doesn't encourage more wall building for sure. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's such a good point that, you know, trades has been doing work integrated learning for a long time. I mean, apprenticeship is a, is a model of that. Right. So um, it's a good reminder. It's also just interesting how, we forget to make those connections. So, mm. yeah. So what are you looking forward to over the next 12 months? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I just continuing to dive into the work that we're doing at BC campus, which, you know, as you know, we're, we're doing a lot of indigenization and, decolonization work on our on ourselves like that professional development piece that is so important um so that's been a real um like a real intense and i think just interesting learning um so i can look forward to that i look forward to just um seeing how the sector adjusts to this you know, to overuse the cliche, the new normal mm -hmm. and what will remain from that. Like, I mean, I'm talking like the pandemic's going to be over in three months or something, which is obviously not the case, but mm -hmm. um, hopefully I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like some things are going to stick and they're going to be good things that stick. And I look forward to seeing what those are. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. It'll be interesting to, to see what sticks and what goes back. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think there's, it's going to be, and of course we all have a role, I think too, to kind of help make certain things stick that are important. Like I, I think the flexible, you know, working from home piece for me, that's always been a real question mark um, in places where I've worked, where it hasn't necessarily been seen as something that's important or feasible. I mean, we all know how to zoom now, right? So it's going to be very difficult to have this argument that higher ed has to be so face-to-face -face and that we need to, invest money in buildings to the extent that we thought we did. So it'd be nice to see where those resources go. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I look at COVID as a, in to one degree as a magnifying glass, right. When it comes to the idea of trust and, and working in a, in a unit, right. And, you know, if an organization trusts its people, then, you know, working from home or, you know, a blended approach to that won't be that difficult to, to talk and work its way through. But if trust and control issues are, are large, then yeah, it you, you can see that some people are just waiting for things to go back to the way they were, because, you know, if you could walk by a space and know that somebody's there, well then now quote unquote, you know that they're at work, but <laughs> you don't really know if they're working or yes. not, but they're at work. No, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all that. And also just the, the commute times, like, I mean, people's lives, you know, are, are complicated. And I'm talking about students in this as well. So just this whole idea of commuting or parking, <laughs> parking lots. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's an environmental, like, 
impact of all this. See, we've talked we've talked about sustainability in our institutions, you know, and environmental sustainability. But uh, you know, this I think it's been great that there's less cars on the road personally. So, yeah. but that's a whole nother podcast, isn't it? That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> we, we wandered a long <laughs> we wandered a long ways from community practice. That, that's okay. It's all good. <laughs> It's all good. I, I do love the commute. I I love my commute, especially when I'm doing night school. It's uh it's a good commute. And I'm not complaining yeah. about that at all. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tannis, for being on the show. I've got five little questions at the end. Uh are you ready? Ooh. I call I'm them ready. my fab. I call them my fab five. So um you ready? Yeah. Okay. What right so you 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 have turned to vegetarianism what's your favorite vegetarian dish right now <laughs> right now i'm still sampling the frozen alternative meat products <laughs> <laughs> no because <laughs> they're so good there's like these great little chicken nugget things really? and like i mean there's there's oh yeah and really? the, the beyond burger sausages oh my god they're so good I'm, oh. I'm telling you the alt meat products have come a long ways. So Dennis. I'm actually really enjoying those, but <laughs> I'm a, I'm a however, the home cooks, you're a hardcore meat eater. Oh. Well, you, you and my rest of my family. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I still eat, I still, I'm a, I'm a pescatarian, I guess, technically, but, um, the thing that I've been making lately that everybody likes is a chickpea shashushka. So that's completely vegetarian. It's actually vegan and it's, it's a hit in my family. So that's a, I can pass the recipe on if you want that for your show notes too, but it's uh, it's really good. That would be great. All <laughs> this, all this extra time on our hands at home. What's your favorite movie? Oh, geez. God, I haven't been what I, haven't watched a movie in a while so that doesn't come to mind but everyone keeps telling me to watch queen's gambit so i'm saving it for the christmas holidays okay I'm nice work binge watch now, yeah exactly queen's, so, yeah i hear that you've been uh, active on a on an internet radio show over the last little while <laughs> yeah sunday special with Marin and Marie. um we are on at 9 a.m. PST on DS106 Radio. There's a, a link to listen to that. Um, basically, what you will experience is we play music every once in a while, and then we just have, we just chit chat on the radio, essentially. <laughs> Talk cool. about our week. And um, it's not everybody's thing, but we have a lot yeah. of fun with it. Cool. What's your favorite band? Who's your favorite band? Oh, there's no favorite. Um, there's just sort of, what I'm listening to right now. Um, I, so what's coming to mind mainly because I, I shared it with my husband the other night is um, I went down a Corey Hart rabbit hole and I don't know if you know the Corey Hart story. Do you know the Corey Hart story? Oh, uh, I was like, in why, do you know why he just, do you know why he disappeared for 20 years? No. Like, do you know why? No. Okay, so at the peak of his career, he dis he not disappeared. He was still doing songwriting and doing pro other projects, but he he became a stay at home dad. He has four kids, oh, <laughs> and his wife who, yeah, and his wife who is um she was a very um, peak of her career Quebec pop star, French language. Um, they they're they're a couple, and they both left their careers to because they didn't think it was possible to do with kids and stay married. Um, so they've been gone for 20 years and Corey just came back because he got, he got a hall of fame thing and, um, he started writing well, started producing and singing again. I think he's on tour or was before COVID hit, but anyways, all that to say his daughter. So he's got two kids in their twenties now. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of them has, she's a singer and she did a, a new version of his song, never surrender. It is so good. It is so really? good. It's better than his. It's no. really good. Yes. So yes, her name's Dante Hart. You can find her on Dante Spotify. <laughs> but I, I love it. It's beautiful. I it's a beautiful re remix of it. Sunglasses yeah. at night, baby. That's, That's not who I'm listening to every day, but <laughs> no sunglasses. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's the, oh. it's the other, the other one. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. What's your go-to tech right now? My AirPod Pros. Oh mm -hmm. my God. If anybody is on the fence about getting those, 
I'm telling you, it's worth it. Definitely get the um, Apple Care on them because I've, I'm on my third pair of AirPods and they do tend to die early lives. But these are amazing. The noise counseling, the, the comfort in the ears. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's one of the best things they've made in a while, I would say. So I'm a big fan. Are those the ones with the the formed earpiece or are they like, yes, like the hard yeah. plastic ones? Yeah, they have a, f- no, they've got a foam in them. Oh, it comes okay. with foam and you can, yeah. yeah, but the quality of the sound is really good. And mm-hmm. the battery doesn't last as long as the other ones, but they, the, the noise canceling is very effective. The microphone is really effective mm-hmm. and uh, they're very comfortable. Very cool. I'll have to check it out. I'm not a big ear air pod ear bud person because the, the hard ones that you get with your phone they don't fit in my ears like they always fall yeah. out like i don't know how people wear these all oh out. yeah exactly i don't know I don't oh it. i know I, I, my other even my other airpods would fall out too but these ones never fall out and here's the thing with airpods is like working and living at home is like you you have to be hands-free like i don't know how anybody survives right now without like wireless headphones i just don't know how it's possible so yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing you're always doing something else (laughs) yeah that's very cool all right last question who's a big influencer for you right now you know there's a lot of people yeah so uh, yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't really want to single anyone out i've i've so much appreciation for people who are on the femed tech um hashtag I, I learned so much from that hashtag um, and appreciate what it's really done for the community. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I'd have to think about that, but there's, I mean, there's, there's just, there's so many great people. I mean, I'm, I'm also trying to, you know, find new voices and, you know, be, you know, be aware of, of that as well. Trying to make sure I don't stay in my little echo chamber and filter. So, Mm-hmm. Um, it's always a work in progress. Sure. Well, that's good. Well, we'll just leave it at that. The whole, uh, femed tech hashtag. We'll just leave it at that. Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds Lots good. of great people in there. I, well, yeah, there are awesome. Well, thanks again, Tannis. This has been a lot of fun. It's been, uh, it's been enlightening and, and I've learned a couple things and thank you for taking the time to be on the show and, uh, yeah, you're awesome. You're awesome too. This was really fun. Thanks for having me again. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Just a little more time is all we're asking for. Cause just a little more time could open closing doors. Just a little uncertainty. Without the blinded hearing